Welcome to a special Responsible Finance Podcast episode. Today, we're sharing with you the audio from a webinar we did on Monday, May 11th, in partnership with Dubai Islamic Economy Development Center. This podcast and the webinar asked the question, can Islamic finance lead the responsible finance response to COVID-19 in OIC countries? To answer this question, we called upon the experience of four speakers who bring tremendous expertise in various elements of the necessary response from the responsible finance industry. Our panel, which I moderated, included Abdullah Al-Awar, CEO of Dubai Islamic Economy Development Center, Khalid Al-Aboudi, Managing Director of Sustainable Finance Solutions, who is CEO of the Islamic Corporation for the Development of the Private Sector, ICD, and also Managing Director of the Saudi Agriculture and Livestock Investment Company, Salek, Rafi Hanif, CEO of Transaction Banking at CIMB, and Ramya Gobalan, Global Innovation Coordinator and Alternative Financing Lead at the International Federation of Red Cross Red Crescent Societies, IFRC. I hope you enjoy the webinar discussion and stay tuned for our next podcast episode, which will be coming out in a few weeks. To stay up to date on RFI's work, follow us on Twitter or LinkedIn. You can find a link to subscribe to our newsletter on either of our social media channels. Thank you, and I hope you enjoy the discussion. Welcome everyone to the, to the webinar uh, organized by RFI Foundation and Dubai Islamic Economy Development Center uh, as a part of the Global Islamic Economy series, uh, GIES Talks. Uh, today we're going to focus on answering the question, can Islamic finance lead the responsible finance response to COVID-19 in OIC countries? Uh, we have uh, four excellent uh, panelists joining us uh, today. Uh, and before we get going with the, with the panelists, um, I'm just going to share, uh, to share a few points about where we are across uh, a range of OIC countries that have Islamic finance uh, presence. Uh, these are large, the largest uh, 10 or so uh, countries uh, in the OIC. Um, and so uh, starting with the, the first point, uh, we see that there's a wide range of situations uh, on COVID across the uh, OIC countries that have Islamic finance. Uh, there are some countries like Malaysia that ha are further along in terms of uh, flattening the curve and reducing the, the outbreak. Uh, and you can see that there's uh, on the far right, bottom right, that Malaysia has a, a far lower share of active cases than other countries. Uh, with, with COVID, there's the, some of the case data is not always uh, very useful uh, because it depends on how, much, how widely testing is available. Uh, so this this chart shows some of the testing rates across uh, across OIC countries, as well as some of the death rates, which which indicates uh, what what number of, of cases that have been tested are are the most acute. Um, and and so we see a fairly wide variation of, of points where different OIC countries are at different points along the, the curve of at least the first wave of the of the outbreaks. Um, and then in the, in the bigger context, we're looking at uh, some indicators uh, for human development um, and also the other changes that, uh, or challenges that are being faced around climate change and climate vulnerability and preparedness for uh, the, the climate transition, which are going through the major issues coming out of COVID. Uh, and again, 
different OIC countries with Islamic finance have, are at different points in terms of vulnerability, in terms of development, uh, in terms of read, readiness for the, uh, for the climate change transition on both, uh, on both an overall uh, metric, but also when broken down, looking at the economic uh, readiness, the social readiness and the governance readiness. Uh, and above, uh, in addition to, and, and driving a lot of the, the, how this readiness translates into the future, uh, we can see on the bottom that, that the World Bank is estimating that GDP across, across all countries around the world, including OIC countries, is going to be severely affected by, uh, by the COVID outbreak. Uh, GDP is, is expected to grow significantly slower in 2020 and 2021 compared to the last few years uh, across a number of uh, different countries. And I think that's going to be a key factor in coming out in how to, uh, what are the capabilities to address uh, environmental and social uh, indicators that, that we saw already as issues coming into the, the crisis for some countries. Um, and how, and going forward, the question is going to be, how does Islamic finance and responsible finance provide tools to help, to help address, um, address some of the challenges. Um, and so with that, I'll turn it over. I'll ask each, uh, each of our participants to, to answer uh, the first question while they give a brief introduction of themselves is, well, what are some of the social and economic challenges caused by COVID-19 that are more acute in, in some of the OIC countries? And so uh, Abdullah, if you'll uh, begin. Um, thank you, thank you, Blake. Uh, the outset, uh, I wanted to uh, uh, thank uh, RFI uh, for uh, their efforts in uh, um, arranging this, uh, this important uh, important webinar. And uh, I think um, um, it's it's very uh, it's an opportune time, I think, for everyone to have this discussion. And I'm, I'm sure. COVID-19 is uh, on everyone's, uh, on everyone's uh, mind. Um, I believe, uh, I mean, personally uh, speaking, um, uh, to measure the impact, um, I, I, think, I think it's early to see the, the impact in its full form um, at, the, at the moment, let alone to measure it, because we are, at the moment, all of us, in my opinion, are still um, uh, struggling you know, uh, and trying to manage uh, the situation uh, within our, uh, you know, within our uh, domain. Um, but uh, there are very obvious, uh, very obvious uh, signs um, that uh, the, the short-term impact is, uh, is uh, significant um, on, uh, on the economic uh, uh, sectors. I think when it comes to the OIC, specifically, my personal opinion is... Um, there are some countries that will be with, with significant risk, especially those who, who uh, import or depend a lot on uh, uh, import uh, of, uh, of uh, commodities such as food, you know. And uh, food security, you know, has, has certainly become a very, very important uh, uh, topic uh, of discussion across all, all uh, platforms uh, that we have seen. Um, the, the, the issue with, uh, with COVID-19 is that it's all, it has both the a health uh, aspect uh, to it, um, uh, a social uh, aspect to it, but also an economic aspect to it. So unlike 
the global crisis of 2008, 2009, which was purely economical or, or, or let's say financial. This is widespread. Uh, so um, so uh, I, I believe uh, when, uh, and, and this will end, uh, inshallah, and, and when it does, um, uh, a lot of the, the, the businesses and governments will be in a better position to assess what really the impact is and how long you know, that, that uh, impact is um, uh, of, of COVID-19. Thank you. And maybe, uh, maybe moving over uh, to, to Malaysia, uh, Rafi, uh, maybe you can share, share view, your view on that question. Thank you, Blake. Um, thank you for having us here on this platform. Um, what we have seen in Malaysia over the last few uh, days, um, people are slowly moving in, moving out from the lockdown and to resume some level of economic activity. And talking to our customers, our clients, we found that uh, some of the service sector businesses have picked up. Uh, they are seeing about 30 to 40% of their normal business flow. Um, some other sectors, retail in particular, uh, uh, other than groceries, um, are really down. In fact, some of them are having even uh, not even 10% of their normal sales. Uh, food and beverages, you know, it ranges around 10 to 20%. So despite the uh, release of the lockdown, people are still worried. They're not going out as normal. They're not seeing the normalcy coming. Um, it is taking a very slow uh, phase in terms of coming back to where we used to be. Uh, and given it's also the fasting period in Malaysia, it is even compounded. Uh, because more people are opting to break their fast at home and probably spending the time cooking and be with the family. So this will have a huge impact to the economy. So when we have been under lockdown for more than, uh, for almost two months, we lost about 2.4 million ringgit for every day of lockdown. That is, you know, that has brought a huge negative impact to the economy. So this year, our GDP forecast is, you know, could be anywhere between minus three to minus 4.5%. I mean, we are just seeing the, the tip of, of the issues now. I think in the weeks to come, we will see the, the real depth of the problems you're facing. So it is one what will impact the social, uh, you know, uh, climate in the sense that unemployment will pick up. A lot of the businesses, which are only having 10%, 20%, 30%, 40% of their usual sales, will have to furlough or lay off the employees. So this will have a huge impact in countries where we don't really have the uh, welfare state uh, safety nets. So we don't have unemployment. There, there has been some, uh, uh, what we call these funds given, special relief funds given to cater for the problems faced by the companies during the MCO, or what we call the movement control order, uh, where some firms have been able to get salary advances for their, for their employees, but it's only for three months. So we, we are yet to see what the, these businesses would do in the months to come, uh, particularly after July, is when I think people will realize their savings have run out, there's no more safety net, and how these businesses will survive the months to come is the biggest question mark we have. Yeah, and I think uh, 
speaking about the, the, the most vulnerable, um, I guess with both both uh, Khalid and, and Ramya, you both have experience dealing with the dealing with these uh, populations uh, from from different angles, but from international multilateral uh, context. Uh, maybe Ramya, do you want to um, explain what have you seen across across the countries that, that you've been involved with uh, through the IFRC in terms of how how is the impact affecting people today and how will it continue to impact people uh, going into the future? Thank you, Blake, uh, and the RFI team for this opportunity. It's uh, really important that we have uh, webinars like this. Um, I think, you know, if I have to start from a social or rather a humanitarian lens, what COVID-19 has obviously made uh, very well known to everyone is the vast humanitarian need that has seen some level of repurposing of finance towards emergency response. Um, but what COVID-19 has further accentuated is really the gaps that we're seeing in water, sanitation, and public health infrastructure across the global south, um, especially uh, in OIC countries. And as you can see, the consequences are devastating even for those countries that have the most basic um, health and infrastructure and wash capacities. So consider then the consequences that are far reaching for those countries where even um, hand washing is, is a luxury um, and social distancing is not always possible. Um, similarly, what we've also been looking at is secondary impacts compounded by climate risks and food insecurities, which further increase uh, the future risks to pandemics and epidemics, but also re reduces the overall resilience of uh, affected communities. Um, if I have to shift a bit and look at it from an economic lens, uh, I would say even when countries are now considering universal basic income and similar policies or stimulus, stimuli um, for the economy, we can see that across the OIC, uh, given the number of fragile states, um, you know, many of these countries don't have the fiscal space readily available um, that prevent really any type of stimulus package. Um, that can counter the kind of impact on livelihoods and employment that we're, we're seeing already. Um, we have to consider, of course, that you know, uh, this is probably a crisis that has united the globe in a sense. Um, and so while the pandemic might, may be contained or come under control in some countries or regions that have the resources, um, that recovery will still be under threat from reinfection of a second or a third wave um, as a result of the lack of resources or investment in, in other countries in the global south, especially across the uh, OIC. Um, so I think, I think from where uh, we, we are experiencing this at IFRC, there is that focus on looking at um, financing that can enable the immediate emergency response for the socioeconomic challenges that we're seeing, but with the foresight that is needed uh, to ensure preventive Financing is also in place for the longer term challenges that are going to only increase uh, going forward. Um, and, and hopefully that will help not just re-energize the economy that we're seeing, but uh, you know, reduce the future threat of uh, reinfection and even ensure free flow of goods and uh, human resources. Over. Khaled, can you, I think maybe with your background, you can bring together a few of these different uh, themes around food security, around um, working with a diverse range of YC countries uh, in the recovery uh, who may or may not have 
have fiscal space to support on their own and may have to look outside of their borders for, for assistance uh, in the response. All right, thank you so much uh, and salam for everybody. Um, well, um, you know, you know, as everybody said, I mean, this is a global uh, phenomena that affected all countries, uh, including OSE countries. The degree of effect actually depends how globalized the economy is. You know, some countries' effect was far greater than others. Uh, but some countries also, uh, in OSE, were uh, quick to respond, to move uh, with stimulus packages. Uh, like, like here in GCC, and some, uh, unfortunately, of OEC countries were in a state of denial, and, uh, you know, luckily few of them, I would say, like, uh, you know, Central Asia, denying that there is a problem until it becomes apparent and, you know, cases start to spread widely. So I think the, the stimulus packages, uh, you know, uh, were helpful, and, 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 and for, for example, in GCC countries, it allowed uh, banks to continue functioning uh, by uh, ensuring that you know the payments from the clients, if it's deferred, will not affect the banks. Uh, so you know it, it helps, but also in these countries, uh, you know the, 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 the because they are also uh, still commodity dependence, oil dependence. The you know crash in the oil prices has also uh, you know pushed them now to think of. Uh, more measures, uh, you know, um, uh, it could be also very painful measures to be taken. The other side of it is also, uh, you know, for uh, countries that attract uh, a lot of foreign neighbors, that has been also uh, a phenomena that, you know, some of these countries have actually tried, uh, you know, to allow businesses uh, to release these workers. Uh, uh, and this is probably seen on, on GCC, maybe also you have uh, seen in other countries like Singapore and other that, uh, uh, you know, there was a sort of like, uh, you know, uh, since, the, since the lockdown, maybe the, you know, the businesses have the chance now to release their workers and send them back. And this is actually will cause a lot of problems for countries uh, that exporting these neighbors, uh, you know, like, some, you know, South Asia, for example. Uh, in, in GCC countries, I think one of the issues, uh, you know, mentioned by Abdullah was the food security issue. I think uh, GCC countries uh, import uh, 60 to 70 percent of, of the food from outside. Uh, this is, was a, a wake-up call because, you know, when you depend uh, on import for food, and then you need to make sure that you have your supply chain is, uh, you know, uh, protected. And it appears that not, might not be the case. Uh, in, at least with the announcement of some countries, especially, uh, you know, grand exporting countries like Russia, Ukraine, that they will put protection on, you know, uh, uh, allowing to, to uh, you, know, uh, you know, to export, uh, trying to ensure that they, they have enough supply locally. So uh, that's, I think, the second wave is the impact of, of these measures on the, you know, Countries exporting commodities, uh, you know, and, 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 and this respect, as I said, oil and, and other commodities are, in, 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 you know, with countries in, in, in a difficult situation because of the, the prices and also the demand. The gulf in the markets make it difficult also to sell your oil. But also on the other side, I think, you know, the uh, uh, commodity dependence or, or even the labor, uh, you know, sending countries also are facing problems of, you know, stopping of the remittances coming, but also, you know, having to deal with the influx of people coming back home. 
I think within this uh, broader context, within the, the financial system and within Islamic banks, which would make up a, a large portion of the Islamic finance assets globally, they're being pulled from, from two angles. They're getting some support from the central bank to, to address this, but they're, they're both seeing um, a draw of financing from, from, from corporate uh, customers who are seeing shortfall in, in revenue and needing to make it up. They're seeing increased demand for financing from SMEs. Uh, and they're, in many cases, uh, they're pausing payments uh, from, from customers. And so that's creating, creating a tension where there, there's limited resources that they have. And I think the, the question is, uh, with Islamic finance being uh, driven by, by an ethical uh, framework, where, where should they focus their efforts to, to address the social uh, the social impacts that COVID is creating? I think um, if, if uh, you allow me, I believe um, specifically with regards to Islamic financial uh, institutions, um, um, I, I, I look at it from a two-phased approach. Phase one, I think um, uh, it's uh, everyone, whether it's you're an Islamic financial institution or a conventional institution or not, uh, everyone, I think everyone will have a similar impact in terms of uh, getting hit, you know, by by uh, uh, by this uh, global pandemic. And specifically, when it comes to managing cash flow, uh, or or you know, uh, the, the question of whether the reserve capital will be sufficient, you know, uh, to cover the shortfall. I think that's on every <laughs> institution's uh, mind. But uh, the point is what happens after this pandemic. I mentioned before, the pandemic will be over. So, uh, inshallah, yani. and, and what, what will happen uh, before? So, when, when it comes to, to uh, the, the Islamic financial institutions, I think the opportunity is there to re-emphasize and refocus on, uh, uh, you know, uh, on, on maqasad al-shari'a and their linkage to uh, the uh, SDG because uh, or or the ESG because um, uh, at the end of the day the nature of this uh, uh, pandemic has I think um, uh, put um, a very clear uh, uh, message uh, out there uh, that uh, you know health concerns are paramount you know among societies uh, even uh, economies worldwide um, so I think naturally therefore. Um, the the SDGs and and the, and the ESG should be a focal point um, uh, going uh, going forward due to the uh, uh, the concerns and the health concerns that was been highlighted by this pandemic. So from a financial institution perspective, um, I think um, uh, as I mentioned, the, the challenge is there, but I think there is an opportunity, uh, you know, to focus more on this uh, going you know going forward. Um, and if I may, I, I know I'm taking with some, but, but because I don't want to forget this point, um, we cannot for, forget as well about the um, SME sectors. I think, yes, uh, economies worldwide are trying as much as possible, or governments, I should say, worldwide are trying as much as possible to save, you know, uh, and, and uh, sustain their, their economies. Um, but in doing so, I do hope that we do not forget this vital sector. Statistically speaking, this is a huge uh, sector in terms of numbers. I mean, numbers of SME businesses in the Middle East alone, I think over 60, 70% of the economic ecosystem is made up of SMEs. Uh, so to access financial, uh, to access funds, especially after 
this this pandemic will will certainly be a challenge. Yeah, uh, Rafi, uh, have you seen in, in Malaysia how you mentioned that the traffic is down 90% at, at some businesses, even as the, the MCO has been relaxed? How, how are SMEs uh, able, are they able to go uh, and, and be supported by the Islamic banks? Uh, has that been a priority? So as, as, as mentioned, um, the SMEs account for almost 95% of the businesses in Malaysia. I think it's pretty much the same in many other countries and employ a significant percentage of the workforce in Malaysia is almost 60% of the workforce is in small and medium uh, size enterprises contributing close to 40% of GDP. And we believe if this this particular condition continues for another month or two in the event, you know, the sales doesn't pick up and you see a lot of constraints in terms of yeah, overheads about 30 to 40% of the SMEs may actually be shut for good. So you're looking at about in Malaysian context, 300 to 400,000 businesses from the SME segment, which may close down for good. In the UK, just a week ago, they say two out of five SMEs have already said they'll be shut for good, even after the lockdown has been eased. So this is a you know common phenomenon in many countries. So if 30% of the SMEs are shut for good, you're looking at about 30% of you know, staff or workforce, that's about 7 million in the SME segment. So you're looking at about 2 to 3 million unemployment. So Malaysia's unemployment rate is around 3 to 3.5% average. So that could really spike with 3 million people potentially out of jobs. And another 300, 400,000 graduates coming on board this year, you're going to see a huge social issue in terms of employability. So that's something the government must tackle. And I think this is where the Islamic banks can play a significant role in both the, at the micro level as well as the macro level. And micro level, as Abdullah mentioned, we need to see how we can support the SMEs. So with the government guarantee schemes in, in the UK, for example, they have started with 100% government guarantee. They call the bounce back business loans, where the government has guaranteed 100%. And with self-declaration, uh, SMEs can get up to 50,000 pounds in terms of funding. So we need to see similar, uh, what we call government support to, to help rejuvenate the SME sector. Now, in the medium term, you're gonna see uh, the globalization that we have seen, the, the growth in globalization that we've seen in the years, in the past years, will be reducing. There'll be more effort to onshore and reshore some of the services and, and businesses that we have given to countries like China and elsewhere. So it means many countries will have more focus on automation and digitization. So more companies in Malaysia, in UAE and Saudi Arabia will try to onshore some of the products they you know, used to get from other countries. And that will lead to automation. And that means more people will be unemployed. It doesn't mean that if businesses come back onshore, people will be employed more. I think it will lead to less employability. And we have seen during this COVID-19 uh, uh, lockdowns in many countries, businesses can survive with less people, with more digital and more online uh, sales. So this is going to be the new normal. And how Islamic banks can help 
in terms of reskilling some of this workforce so that they could be you know in more productive sectors compared to the sectors they used to before this is the biggest challenge we are facing uh, mobility of resources particularly human resources is a very sticky issue and how islamic banks can play a role in migrating this workforce employability um, is a big question mark and i don't think islamic finance is prepared for this kind of scenario I think we have uh, two two themes that are sort of picking up here is that one there's going to be a, a lower demand for for work in some of the wealthier uh, OIC countries and there's going to be a flow of, of workers back uh, who are working in, in other countries back to their home countries uh, where there may be fewer fewer employment opportunities to begin with and and, and other other uh, social challenges uh, whether that's health infrastructure or water and sanitation uh, what what ways have there have there been found uh, on a, on that sort of uh, lower end of the, the spectrum of the, the workers who are returning home? Uh, Rami, have, uh, what has the, the IFRC seen in terms of uh, experience in the past of helping to address some of these basic uh, water and sanitation issues, as well as some of the uh, communities that have uh, shortfalls in, in terms of their access to the financial system and to to, to cash and how do they how do they respond to to be resilient themselves even in a in a, in a tough situation? Thank you, Blake. Um, I think it's important to recognize that, especially in a crisis like this, Islamic finance has a real role to play, um, particularly given the principles of uh, shared prosperity and risk. Um, else, learning from the financial crisis of 2008, we end up repeating the faux pas um, and really where we focus just on socializing risk and privatizing profit to actually moving beyond that to socialize risk and socialize profit as well. Um, I think there's a number of ways in which, uh, you know, we can play a role and, and picking up from my previous um, colleagues uh, response. Um, one, I think when we look at global uh, remittances, especially, um, it's important to look at, um, for example, um, for lower middle income countries, you know, remittances is accounted for about 700 billion per year, according to the World Bank. Um, and in 2019, uh, these countries were able to secure uh, approximately 78% of all global remittances. Now, this is a vital source of income for developing countries, whether it pays for food or for health, or even as uh, investments for many of these SMEs that we're referring to. Um, and this is obviously predicted to fall by 20% in 2020. Um, and I think, uh, you know, uh, one, of the, one of the areas that there is a role for the banks to play, especially Islamic banks, is to look at how we can work with some of these uh, money transfer mechanisms and operators and governments um, to ensure these kinds of uh, remittances and wiring services are still being able to, you know, um, do their job on a non-discriminatory basis. Um, but even going beyond that, you know, uh, I would say from a social lens, I think Islamic social finance has always been on the sidelines. It's not been on the mainframe as much as Islamic banking and financial assets. Um, and I believe there's a real opportunity then to make Islamic social finance count 
whether that be in the form of short-term zakats or longer-term development sukuks, for example, um, there is a real value in how Islamic finance, uh, social finance can be integrated into these larger policy debates um, and, and look at how they can actually enable not just immediate relief uh, or charity, but really around the sustained impact for many of the communities that we're working on. Um, you know, uh, we have worked on a couple of examples uh, at the IFRC, uh, one where we enabled uh, an international zakat contribution um, from the Malaysian state of Perlis uh, to support Kenya's drought assistance program. Um, and this was really remarkable in the kind of sustained impact it was able to achieve. With just $1 million, we were able to reach 1.2 million people um, and really provide uh, livelihood strengthening through farming, as well as water supply through rehabilitation of solar powered pumps and so on. Um, we, you know, uh, the kind of the um, total, uh, you know, area that was planted in this county in Kenya uh, was increased from like 130,000 to more than 250,000 um, acres of land. And this helped yield a total value of USD 20 million in harvest. Now, this is incredible if you look at what 1 million of that was able to provide in terms of that shared prosperity for the community that was affected by drought. And that's just one example. And uh, I don't want to take too much time, but I'm happy to talk about more examples if there's time. I think uh, what is what are some of the examples both from from Islamic finance and Islamic social finance and others that that uh, others have seen uh, in terms of trying to to generate both that type of uh, social return uh, within you know wherever on the spectrum between uh, pure philanthropy and pure commercial finance within Islamic finance uh, where where can Islamic finance uh, make a significant difference uh, in in supporting the, the medium term uh, outlook of, of the recovery from the, from the immediate impact. Is this addressed to me or? Yeah, you can, you can okay. uh, start. All right. Well, uh, when, you, when we look back to uh, 2008 uh, uh, crisis, I think uh, it was, uh, you know, everybody agreed that, you know, the Islamic banks at that time were less affected than conventional banks because of the um, you know as, uh, asset-backed financing uh, of the Islamic finance. Uh, now in this crisis, I think uh, Islamic finance will be affected uh, because of the stoppages and on the uh, and the economic activities uh, around them. And, and I think uh, their ability to support their clients uh, uh, sometimes limited because, as I said, if there is no stimulus packages coming from governments through them to to these clients. Will be difficult for them, uh, you know, uh, to, to to support. Now, these clients also, if they are highly leveraged, probably will have more difficulties than those who are not highly leveraged, or that their financing were, let's say, uh, mostly uh, covering their uh, operating assets. But for the SMEs in particular, I think, you know, uh, they tend, uh, tend not to be high leverage, but uh, you know, their uh, working capital needs are, are, are huge. So. You know, either uh, you know to reduce the the, the the impact on them. Either you uh, you go back quickly to normal uh, normal situation by allowing or easing the lockdown, or you know, uh, as Raif was saying, you know, through online and you know they can be still operational. Uh, 
so that's that's one of the issue. I, I think in general, Islamic uh, you know banks uh, product mix actually focus more on consumer finance than in like saving uh, products. I think what what we need in this crisis for most of the you know individuals and also SMEs is that you know had been there enough saving schemes, uh, it would have probably helped. Uh, you know, whether uh, some of the impact of this uh, of this crisis. So, what I would like to see that there should be some kind of balance uh, on on that issues and uh, you know uh, encourage, let's say, consumers. And you know, here also in Saudis, for example, it just happened that three months ago, Sama, the central bank, started a campaign to encourage people for saving. You know, it's a very wide campaign i mean it's 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 not usual that the central bank do that but this this was done and i think this need to be also taken by the uh, by the uh, banks themselves uh, i think the other issue is also the uh, islamic social um, safety net i think uh, uh, in, in many cases they are not uh, they're not there uh, or they're not uh, you know regularized in, in a way that they can function quickly on a situation so some countries were forced to um, you know set up uh, funds uh, to try to support uh, during these crises, but I would, uh, you know, uh, uh, advise that you know the the waqf, the zakat, all these institutions should be looked on, on having uh, you know sort of like more structured ways of uh, supporting uh, you know individuals and small businesses in the countries compared to normal situation. I mean there is. Of course, uh, uh, in uh, a natural uh, evolution and trying, you know, to reach out, but you know, it seemed that uh, you know that that was not enough. And I, I can say that some of the wealthy individuals who wants to uh, actually support, they can't support because there is no mechanism there. And so, you know, one of the issues is that let's have these foundations actually work with the governments to have. You know, a streamlined and 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 structure way of support in in, 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 in times of crisis. Yeah, I think it looks like it sounds like from from your point about the the differences in the impact uh, this time versus the, the global financial crisis. There's going to need to be a different response, uh, and we have uh, just to bring in one of the questions we've had in the uh, from the from the audience here. Uh, is, is how does Islamic finance differentiate itself after this crisis where there's a much broader scope of things uh, that, that need to be done, whereas the global financial crisis was characterized really by the, the lower levels of, of leverage uh, and the, the less reliance on debt. Uh, this is more of a, of a social, social crisis at its heart in, in terms of the long-term impact. How does Islamic finance differentiate itself going forward uh, on its response and rebuilding from from this. So let me let me take it. You know, I'll try to summarize the key points. Pre COVID nineteen, there were two key issues faced by uh, Islamic finance um, in the context of one uh, inequality, income inequality, wealth inequality, and the second one is environmental degradation. These are the two key issues. Uh, faced by OIC countries as well as, you know, the globe. So what we've seen, Islamic finance has been inadvertently exacerbating these two problems. 
in the sense that as Khalid was mentioning earlier, we have been focusing on debt-based intermediation. We have been, you know, giving out household finance, whether it's personal finance, credit cards. We have been dishing out um, corporate loan, corporate financing. So debt has built up the, to the extent in Saudi Arabia, households spend more than they earn. I think it ranges anywhere between 800 to 3,000 riyal uh, as of the last research. So they've been spending beyond their means supported by finance. It could be Islamic finance, it could be conventional finance. So this has led to huge income inequality where median income in Saudi Arabia just, is just around 3,000 over dollars. And average income is of course a lot higher. The same goes in Malaysia. So how do we make sure that there is a balanced approach towards this form of financing post-COVID-19? Can we have a more balanced approach where we help uh, savings as well as investments and moderate the debt buildup? But the problem is without debt, there is no room for growing the GDP. This is the biggest challenge we're facing. All the countries, without exception, have been developing the countries, increasing the GDP by increasing debt. So debt equals growth, growth equals prosperity and happiness. That is the you know, world view that we've all come to adopt, whether it's in Saudi Arabia or in Malaysia or elsewhere. How do we reverse that? How do we build in the externalities like income inequality, wealth inequality, economic degradation? All these have a cost. We're not building that cost in our GDP. So in the, in the US, for example, in 2017, the loss caused by environmental uh, crisis, uh, various you know, uh, climate disasters came to around 300 over billion dollars in 2017 alone. So who's factoring that in, in the cost of financing, in the cost of providing financial services? So we just look at the direct income, direct outcome, but we're not looking at the externalities that could impact the true cost of our, our, our financing and true, true cost of investment. I think this is the way forward. We need to in, analyze the impact and find the true cost of our financing and investment to give a more balanced uh, intermediation to the world. May I add, um, may I add another uh, point to, uh, uh, to Brother Rafia's uh, point? I, I believe uh, the, you know, the opportunity is there, but it should be, um, it, it definitely should be a combined effort. You know, when we say, when we say, okay, there is an opportunity for the Islamic finance sector to focus on more, um, uh, let's say, tools or products that are linked, you know, with, um, uh, or, or have a focus on uh, sustainable development or socio, you know, uh, socioeconomic uh, development, that agenda has to be driven not only by the, the, the private sector or even the government, but I, I personally believe even, uh, you know, multi-governmental institutions, whether it's the OIC or the IDB, should really be driving that, that agenda uh, for, forward for the Islamic finance uh, in collaboration with them. We have seen efforts by different governments um, to focus on, uh, on products, uh, you know, um, uh, that uh, that lead uh, to this goal, um, but uh, these are scattered efforts today, um, and it should there should be a more combined effort, you know, by 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 everyone. Yeah, let me. Can I jump in? Yeah, have you? Yeah, thank you. 
uh, and maybe I start with respectfully disagreeing that um, you know this is this is a social crisis vis-a-vis -vis the 2008 uh, financial crisis. I, I don't think we can separate the two, to be honest. Um, and I think that's becoming very clear in how this this crisis is unraveling um, for many of the countries that uh, that are affected. Um, I do think, therefore, the uniqueness or the advantage that Islamic finance has over conventional finance is that this is one opportunity where the principles of shared risk and shared prosperity is right in the heart of the financing. And I think this is really, really critical. Um, and this is one model of financing which, which combines, you know, which has the opportunity to combine the social financing aspect as well as the Islamic banking aspect. And this is really really the advantage and kind of the leadership that Islamic finance has and can really move forward. Um, just to give you an example, and because, um, you know, the previous panelists talked about uh, IDB, um, we have been collaborating with Islamic Development Bank now um, for some time, um, specifically on a financing model that uh, looks at longer term development and building community re resilience. I say this, um, you know, it's focused on water and sanitation uh, as well as public health. Um, while this might seem like a, you know, a, a, a social uh, problem to solve, uh, it's important to know that, you know, globally we have around 2.3 billion people uh, lacking sanitation facilities, 844 million people uh, not having basic drinking water. Um, and, uh, and about 150 million people still drinking water from contaminated sources. I give these statistics just to point out to the kind of issues we're dealing with um, and then look at that in the light of the ongoing crisis with COVID-19. If you have such a tremendous, a significant size of the population not having access to the most basic of solution as a response to this crisis, uh, then where do we really stand? Um, but at the same time, we recognize also that, you know, um, this is this we can treat this as wash and as a social issue. But the absence of, you know, um, good, you know, clean drinking water and basic sanitation services costs economies annually around twenty five billion dollars in economic losses. Um, so where, how then is this does this only become a social crisis? Right. Um, and I think, you know, that that's become really clear with the ongoing crisis. So. In our work with the Islamic Development Bank, we have developed a financing model that really improves on traditional development impact bonds. Um, so it's a scalable outcome-based fund that would enable issuance of a multi-million dollar sukuk. Um, and this is really focused on um, OIC countries. Uh, 29 of the 40 OIC countries are considered hotspots for cholera. Whether it be cholera or whether it be COVID, the simple and proven solution of hand washing, personal hygiene, and understanding the disease and transmission is really, really critical. Um, and if you're saying two thirds of the countries that are considered hotspots, over two thirds of these countries are in the OIC, and these are also the most vulnerable countries to the current crisis. Um, so the fund we're working on, or the Sukuk really uh, targets a minimum of 5 million people by 2025, and a further uh, minimum of 10 million people by 2030, to ensure that they have the availability and access of water sanitation, hygiene infrastructure, as well as public service messaging and campaigns, because we, we know for sure that equitable access to health and wash services and infrastructure 
will obviously limit the incidence, severity, and resultant morbidity and mortality of any of the world's uh, pandemics and epidemics. And this is, this is just one opportunity to realize this, but also recognize that it's not about the current crisis. It's about investing in these infrastructures through these types of innovative development sukuks um, that combines really Islamic private capital as well as Islamic social finance to really demonstrate uh, how we can build that longer term community resilience and prevent or reduce their risks to future pandemics and epidemics um, along the way. So I, I'll stop here, sorry for taking too much time. I think uh, we're, we're getting to, to some of the, the, the key issues around uh, environmental degradation, uh, inequality, uh, lack of health and infrastructure access, uh, lack of support for SMEs uh, and debt. I guess, what are some of the areas that Islamic banks have been uh, have been most successful at in, in showing uh, showing how they're responding both both in the lead up to this on on these issues that are being uh, really accelerated uh, by COVID. Uh, and what are, what are some of the areas that, that need to have some improvement where Islamic financial institutions can make uh, a particular impact? So in, in uh, Malaysia, think, we have seen, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, go, go ahead. No, no, please go ahead. Uh, no, I just uh, have a small comments about, uh, you know, you, you know, before this crisis, the sustainability Sustainable finance movement was uh, just starting to pick up, and you know, uh, you know, uh, corporates around the world are being asked to look into their businesses and you know to, to find out you know what, what which of these uh, practices that they have you know uh, need to be fixed uh, in order for them to be more socially responsible, uh, and you know the impact investment, for example, going directly to investors, telling them this, this, you know, the, these companies or these sectors, these countries, are not doing well to the, you know, uh, good to, to our environments, so or we're not encouraged to invest in these. So th this, that was a movement. I think Islamic uh, banks have missed that movement, or they're not very uh, presence in it. Uh, maybe because they think that uh, their business is, uh, is actually had more of uh, sustainability than others. Uh, and maybe this is true because of the issue of, uh, you know, uh, confining the leverage to the assets uh, that the, the client have. But I think this need to be uh, looked at also again from Islamic, you know, banks uh, and see where and, 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 and that movement that, that, uh, that can fit and present themselves. Uh, on the, after the crisis, I think one of the issues is that you know everybody expected that we will be probably less globalized economies. Uh, I think the role of state will grow more, and I think you know many countries will look into their supply chain and try to bring it uh, closer to the home. Now, bringing these closer, and let's take the uh, issue of food, for example. I think you know most of the programs of the food security and the GCC focus on you know, uh, countries who are not OEC countries. Uh, They're in, uh, you know, Black Sea area, Latin America, Europe, uh, Australia, and less in Africa, for example, while Africa has great potential. And the reason was that Africa actually, uh, problems with all this potential in, in agri and agribusiness lack infrastructure. So uh, it is uh, much more costly to grow food in Sudan and bring it to Saudi Arabia than to grow food and bring it from uh, uh, Ukraine, for example. So if this crisis shows that we have to bring this production 
or supply closer home, then we have to focus on helping, uh, you know, Africa, for example, which is closer to the Middle East. Uh, uh, and for that reason, also some, some of the countries in East Asia, uh, to bring them, uh, you know, to focus on the infrastructure uh, uh, support and insurance and finance. Uh, I hope that countries will look into also PPPs uh, and stop just relying on public uh, financing, you know, received from multilateral institutions for the infrastructure projects, because that did not help. I think we should, they should move to the PPPs, have the private sector uh, more involved there through concessions, and I think this is will help these countries to build the infrastructure that will enable it uh, to have production and food and others as well. But, you know, focus is on food because this is immediate impact uh, that we will be uh, seeing. Uh, uh, you know, and, and I hope that Islamic banks will be moving to this area. I mean, we'll look into this area and build up teams who understand this investment and participate in it. Rafi? I just want to echo what was said by Brother Khalid just now. Just before this crisis, before this pandemic, we have been talking, we have been engaging with um, stakeholders in the UAE, in Saudi Arabia, the rest of the Gulf, to bring them on board uh, on sustainability uh, pacts, whether it is UNPRI, whether it is UNEPFI. So we have been trying to get the, uh, particularly the Islamic banks, to become members or signatories to take UNPRI, for example, there are more than 3,000 signatories globally, and we only have two signatories from Saudi Arabia, six from UAE, and 10 from Malaysia. And UNEPFI, there are more than 300 banks, financial institutions, who are members of UNEPFI, and we only have two from Malaysia and one from UAE. So we hope that more banks, more financial institutions will take a leading role in terms of advancing sustainable practices financial practices uh, by becoming signatories and members to this uh, organization. Through joining these organizations, we can share the best practices and try to adopt a more sustainable financing approach in the country where we operate. And more importantly, is to look into the client base that we have. It's not only making the financing Islamic, but ensuring that the end result of the financing is also sustainable. If you're giving Islamic financing to a company which is not providing fair labor policies, exploiting their labor, their workforce, or polluting the environment, uh, discharging the waste unsustainably, then no point giving Islamic financing to them. Because while the financing mode is Islamic, but the end result is against Sharia, against Makassi. So these are the additional efforts that we need to make to bring our financing in line with the higher objectives of Sharia. And this is a great moment for us to reflect all these issues and reset. But my only fear is, given the headwinds that we're facing on the social and economic front, there'll be less emphasis now compared to before on ensuring sustainability because everyone is trying to make their earning to sustain a break-even point. They're not looking at making profit this year and probably next year is about staying afloat. So maybe if the only way to stay afloat is to have exploitative labor policies or to adopt unsustainable environmental practices, many firms will opt out for the easy road compared to becoming more sustainable. And that's something the government and the financial institutions need to play a role to curtail those 
negative impacts. May I just comment on this because I, I mentioned uh, before uh, that um, I, I appreciate and understand what Brother Rafia is mentioning and I think that fear is amongst uh, everyone but in my personal opinion I think that's why I mentioned it's the two-phased approach because phase one I really agree with what Brother Rafi is saying. Phase one, everyone will be concerned, you know what, I need to survive. You know, we need to, we need to survive, we need to see this through. Uh, uh, but uh, I think we should not lose sight uh, on what is after that phase. And I think what is after that phase is, is crucial, which is to become even more focused than before on, on um, uh, developing a sustainable, you know, uh, uh, framework. And, uh, and I hear all my esteemed panelists saying the same thing. I, I, I agree with them. I think combined efforts, it, it cannot just be led by the private sector alone. Uh, I know there are governments, including the government of the UAE, that has pushed uh, forward to, to create initiatives such as the Sustainable Finance uh, you know, uh, Committee uh, made up from institutions from the private sector and public sector, etc. And I think that that should be... I'm sure it exists more than the UAE, and I'm sure Malaysia also has that. Uh, but uh, but I think, you know, we they should be talking to each other. I mean, I I, I think there should be a, an umbrella where where this is a combined effort uh, aimed at the sector rather than an, at each economy uh, separately. I think that we have uh, some questions coming through about about some of these issues. Uh, just to to preface it, I, I saw an article, I think, in the Financial Times the other day that was saying that more investors are willing to compromise on their on the access to dividends than on ESG issues. So I think that uh, a question that the businesses, particularly businesses that have uh, international investors are going to have to grapple with is, does that short-term unsustainable practice that they think is going to enable them to survive, is that going to undercut their, their long-term uh, profitability and, and does that apply to Islamic banks that are you know maybe financing activities that are that are not sustainable but have uh, have these same types of investors to answer to uh, once the crisis has receded? Blake, we have seen our investors, particularly those from Europe, Europe European investors, have allowed us the, the room to grow sustainably and in the process accept the lower dividend. So we are seeing that shift from particularly European investors. We want to see a similar shift from Asian investors mm -hmm. because we are not measuring the true cost of the investment. A bank can give you know, 15, 18% return, but if it's at the cost of externalities like environmental degradation and social issues, then the 15% is not truly reflecting the, the, the returns that the investors are getting. So we need to look at the true cost in terms of our returns and build in a more sustainable uh, measure for returns. And I think the Asian and, and Middle Eastern investors need to adopt the best practices from Europe in terms of measuring true cost and true returns. I think we uh, there is a another uh, global asset management firm came out and said they had uh, seen an 80% increase in uh, interest from Asian investors, Asian Pacific investors in ESG. And so I think as we're running out of uh, time, I'll, I'll give each of the, the three uh, 
other panelists to just a quick, uh, quick final statement on that point of, of how do we, how do we go from here, but to address the impact in the uh, immediate and medium term objectives through Islamic and responsible finance. Do you want to start, Ramya? Uh, sure. Thanks, Blake. Um, so I think uh, you know there is a tendency to have a very short memory after a crisis, um, and there is a tendency to be very reactive in financing during a crisis. Um, and then quickly the memory fades, and uh, the importance of preventive financing is forgotten until the next crisis hits. Um, so at the risk of sounding like a broken record, I think there's really, given the fundamental principles of Islamic financing, is really an opportunity to combine uh, Islamic private finance and Islamic social finance um, in terms of collaboratively developing uh, new financial products and mechanisms that can really have meaningful longer term impact uh, and not simply about quick wins. And I think, you know, uh, beyond these webinars, and I'm lucky I work with a lot of you, but beyond the webinars, it's a real opportunity to look at how can we really collaborate in making that transformative change in the way financing is done overall, um, and how we can also use Islamic finance to integrate into larger macro policy uh, discussions as well and bring these principles to become a norm and not as an exception on the margins, really, uh, going beyond even OIC countries to others. Thank you so much. No, I think uh, where to go from here, I think it's, it's an important question. Uh, we would expect, uh, you know, countries uh, come together uh, through various forums. Uh, for example, let's say, uh, you know, G20, we expect more focus on these issues. They've been discussing issues like, you know, uh, SMEs, uh, asset pact, uh, food securities. But I think there should be a real discussion now on, on this. Now, in, the, in terms of what countries can do, uh, that can, it's, 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 a, it's all about, uh, you know, responsible finance. I mean, finance is there. How can we make it more responsible? Whether it's, you know, coming from Islamic banks or conventional banks. I think this is important that, you know, the... Uh, Islamic banks uh, seize the opportunities and present themselves as, uh, you know, a, a channel uh, to do more uh, of this, of these practices. Uh, of course, as I said, the, the world after that will be, will be different. We will see this uh, on the countries trying to ensure their supplies uh, from uh, basic and also uh, necessi necessary commodities. Uh, so it's important is also being created to invest closer home. And I hope that you know Islamic finance will be able to also rise to these opportunities and and provide funding to these um, uh, you know uh, businesses that will enable countries, let's say in Africa, for example, uh, you know uh, to uh, at least uh, supply part, not not all, but part that comes now from other region of the world. Final thought. Uh, yes, obviously, I, I agree, uh, obviously, with both uh, uh, Ramya and, uh, and Khaled. I think uh, the sector today is very well suited to, to uh, address uh, the, the issue of um, creating a sustainable you know, uh, developed, uh, developed ecosystem. Uh, and uh, the, the pandemic, uh, if anything, uh, maybe reinforced uh, that message 
uh, for the for the uh, Islamic finance uh, sector. So I think after uh, this is over, I hope uh, to see um, uh, a lot more innovation when it comes to to uh, the Islamic finance uh, products uh, out there that uh, uh, address uh, this uh, need uh, specifically and address you know the uh, the uh, each society's well-being, if you will, if I can phrase it or frame it that way. Um, so, uh, so that's what I look forward to. I, th I thank you all for participating in, in this webinar. Uh, and I think just closing this, we've seen uh, a real increase in the interest in sustainable finance within Islamic finance over the past uh, past year or so. And I think what we what we need to take away from this crisis is that the opportunity and the the risk from not seizing it is is higher. The investors are. Uh, focused on this, uh, society's expectations are raised by the by the greater inequalities that have been exposed by the by the crisis, as well as the acceleration of trends that were disruptive to the economy, uh, and so it's really going from here. I think the the message of of collaboration, and that's what our five foundation is set up to do. And so I, I hope everyone who's uh, joined today will uh, stay in touch and, and follow along with what we've done and and, uh, and find find ways to engage and support it. And so thank you all. Um, and thank you all to our uh, attendees for, for joining us today. Thank you. Thank, thank you, you everyone. Thank you. thank you everyone. Bye bye. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.